And as you're being seated, please take out your Bibles and turn to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31. Jeremiah, chapter 31. Jeremiah 31. We'll get there in a few minutes. So important that you follow along in the scriptures this morning. We're going to deal with something that uh, a lot of people don't understand. Most of you do, but those people we talk to every day don't seem to. How many of you over 50, over 50, remember the first car with the first car loan that you ever had. Raise your hands. First car with the first car loan, over 50, idea. Okay. Now, even though I ask you that, I don't remember specifically, exactly, all of the minute details. It's been a long time. I've slept a lot since then. However, a few general details. My first car was an old, maroon, mid to late 60s Ford Fairlane. It was a rust bucket. I will tell you right up front. It was a hunk of junk rust bucket, which, if I remember correctly, back in the day, cost me 200 bucks. It was an old, rusted out piece of junk that um, some friends of my parents had sitting out in their field or by their barn, garage. I don't remember the exact thing, but this thing was retired, shall we say. And so it cost 200 bucks. Now, for me on my parents' insurance, to just get liability, because it was a personal loan that they helped me get as a teenager, the liability insurance on it was more than the car. The car cost me 200, the liability was like 300. So, like I say, they helped me secure this personal loan for 500 bucks, okay? $500. <clears throat> now, I don't remember the exact payments or anything like that, it was a long time ago, but I think for a year the payments on that 500 bucks was like $48 a month or something. We'll round it to 50, but 48 to 50 bucks a month, something like that for a year with interest. Just about 20 years, a wife, and three kids later, I, in the mid to late 90s, when I was driving tractor trailer for a living, had an opportunity and purchased another vehicle. The, the, the Fairlane didn't last 20 years, don't get me wrong, there were other vehicles in between. But I, I purchased this brand new four-wheel drive GMC club cab pickup truck, had four miles on the odometer when I drove it off the lot in Augusta, Maine, brand new truck. And you know, while that new vehicle was infinitely better, obviously, much more beautiful and far more capable of taking me through whatever came my way than the old one had, obviously some things stayed the same between the two vehicles. Some of those things were, I still had to work with the bank. I uh, still had a bank loan. <laughs> Only on the new truck, the payments were about eight times as much a month as they were on the car. They were 50-ish on the car. They were a little over 400 on the pickup truck per month, just a shade over at the time. As I recall, I don't think it was the same. I didn't really take notes at the time because I didn't think I'd be preaching about it somewhere down the line, but I believe the payments were due on a different day, and I believe the interest rate was probably a lot different over the course of those 20 years. Now, let me ask you a question. What do you think would have happened once I had gotten the loan for the new pickup truck agreed to the terms and conditions, signed the paperwork, got the loan, put the money down, gone through the whole process. What do you think would happen a few months of that? Uh, uh, let me say that again. What do you think would have happened? I can say that. A few months later, had I walked into the bank and said, tell you what, boys, here's my $50 monthly payment because I've got a contract. It says 50 bucks a month will do it. How long do you think I'd have kept that new pickup truck? 
Not very long at all. If I had sought to insist on that old contract on that old vehicle and the terms and conditions from that old vehicle and that old contract on the new contract, I wouldn't have been able to keep the truck. They'd have repoed it, right? Now, I want you to think about that. Think hard about that. My personal, get this, this has to do with the lesson. We're not just going to talk about car loans today, I promise. My personal insistence on failing to honor the difference between the old contract with the old contract's terms and conditions and the new contract agreement on the new vehicle would have cost me the new one if I had sought to keep the new one by honoring the terms of the old one. Does that make sense to everybody? It's pretty simple, isn't it? Pretty straightforward? Okay. What I want you to realize for today's lesson is that is exactly what too many of our friends and neighbors do when it comes to religion. They want the new, better, upgraded, beautiful, wonderful, but they want to pull up stuff from the old contract and try to make it binding on the new. And that simply cannot be done. You cannot fail to understand and recognize the terms and conditions of the new contract, covenant, testament, will, agreement. You cannot fail to understand the difference between them and keep the new by going with the terms of the old. And I'm going to show you what I mean as we go forward. And I'm going to ask that you take notes because I've condensed what could be probably a three-month study into one sermon. So you may want to take a few notes. In Genesis chapter 17, don't have to turn there, I'm just, you'll know this. In Genesis chapter 17, God makes a covenant, a contract, a testament, a will, an agreement. They all mean the same thing. A binding agreement is what they all mean, okay? God makes this covenant or this testament or this agreement with Abraham and his physical descendants after him, the Jews, the Israelites. This first or old covenant was a binding agreement or contract, which is mentioned in a lot of other places throughout the Bible. For example, that old covenant or agreement with Abraham is later noted as the reason why God would lead the Israelites out of Egyptian bondage in Exodus chapter 2, verse 24. It's specifically mentioned there. This old agreement or contract with Abraham was the overall covenant which was later extended to include the law of Moses, Leviticus chapters 25 and 6. That old covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis 17 is also noted as a great cause of celebration and rejoicing by King David and the Old Testament people of God in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verses 13 through 22. Even up in the New Testament, that old covenant made with Abraham and then extended to include the law of Moses. That Old Testament covenant agreement is mentioned with Peter in his sermon in Acts chapter 3, as well as with Stephen in his sermon in Acts chapter 7. But here's the thing. When God made that old covenant with those people back then, he knew they weren't going to keep it. He knew they were not going to keep the terms and conditions of that contract, Deuteronomy 31, 20 and 21. And so God began to tell them way back during those days under the prophets, this old covenant, he began to tell them even back then that he was going to establish a new covenant. He was going to establish a new contract, a, a new agreement. It was going to have different terms. It was going to have different conditions. And we read that in, Gener in Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning at verse 31. Look what God says through Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. Remember, a covenant is simply a binding agreement, a will, a testament. Okay? 
when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds, I'll write it on their hearts, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, I will remember no more. It's pretty easy to see as you read that what God is talking about. He said they didn't keep that old agreement, so I'm going to establish this new one. Now, please notice, the terms and conditions are going to be a little different. You will recall, under the old law, the Jews, God's people, you will recall that when they were born, of course, they had to be circumcised the eighth day, and as these little children, as they, as they grew up, they would slowly be taught, hey, you're a descendant of Abraham. You're one of God's people. As they were, they were already born into the family, and then they would have to be taught. But God says, it's not going to be that way under the new covenant. It's going to work different. You're not going to have to teach them that they're my people. You know why? Because before you ever enter into this covenant, you're already taught this is what it takes to be a child of God. Under the new covenant, you're not born into the family and then have to learn that you're part of God's family. You're taught what it takes to become part of God's family, hearing, believing, confessing, repenting, being baptized. You learn what it takes before you become a member of the family what it takes. And that's what God's talking about in Jeremiah 31. He said, you're not going to have to teach everyone all of these things about how they were born into, into the family and they're my people. They're all going to know that when they become a member of my family, which is what we're taught before baptism. So there's there's different terms and conditions. But I want you to make no mistake about it, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. This is exactly what Jesus Christ came to do. Jesus Christ came to this earth to completely keep and then to completely abolish, annihilate, do away with that old covenant or contract or testament or will or agreement. He came to totally do away with it, with all of its terms and all of its conditions and all of its instruction to completely get rid of it. Because once it had been lived perfectly, it could be abolished. And that's exactly what Jesus came to do. And not only to do away with the old one, but Jesus came to establish a brand new one. He came to establish the terms and conditions of the new, using my car analogy, the new loan. He came to tell us what those terms and conditions, they'd be totally different totally different. And, you know, the New Testament is so full of this teaching and running over with it about the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant and everything I've said so far that it is amazing that so many people miss it. In Luke chapter 22, verse 20, as well as 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus is quoted in both of those texts as talking about the cup that contained the fruit of the vine and how that fruit of the vine, listen to this, represented the new covenant. I was so grateful when I saw the text up there for communion because that too mentioned the new covenant. This new covenant in Jesus' blood which was shed for us and which those under the new covenant are to partake of in remembrance of him, the blood he shed, and by which we are cleansed under the terms of the new contract, the new covenant. It's completely different than the old. Now, Jesus brought this new covenant or contract to realization. He brought it to reality. He brought it into existence with his death on the cross. What did he say? He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, right? And so when he died on the cross and shed his blood, that brought in this new agreement, this new contract. This very passage from Jeremiah chapter 31 that we just quoted is quoted verbatim 
word for word in the New Testament in what is perhaps one of the greatest sections of Scripture talking about everything I've said so far about how the Old Covenant has gone out and the New Covenant has come in. And that section of Scripture is Hebrews, four chapters. Chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10. If you want a concentrated dose of this morning's sermon in the Scripture, Hebrews 7 through 10 is fabulous. And, and Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 is quoted right in the heart of it. Turn with me to Hebrews 8. And again, because of the time factor, I hope you will take the time to go home this afternoon and, and really read through this and understand the difference between the two contracts or covenants or wills or agreements, testaments. In Hebrews chapter 8, I'm just going to hit a highlight here. Let's prove the difference. Hebrews 8, begin at verse 6. But now he, that is Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also the mediator, watch this, of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. If you want one verse that sums up the whole message of the entire book of Hebrews, there it is. Hebrews is about the fact that you and I have a better covenant, a better savior, a better system than that old contract. Suppose that new GMC was a lot better vehicle than that old Ford Fairlane? Tell you what, and don't get after me after the sermon and say, well, I'm a Ford guy. <laughs> new with four miles and that piece of old car, junk. Big difference. I had something so much better, and we, under the new covenant, have something so much better. But watch what he goes on to say in, verses seven, uh, in verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. If that first one could have saved people, there wouldn't have been needed a second one. Because finding fault with them, he says, behold, the days are coming. Right here, here's that very text from Jeremiah. It's quoted verbatim here. And when he gets done quoting it, look what he says in verse 13. In that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The writer of Hebrews is telling you, look, this is what Jeremiah was talking about. That old covenant is gone. There's a new agreement in place. Seems pretty simple. If we go down to the very next verse, chapter 9 and verse 1, then indeed even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. What's he telling you? Well, let's go back to our illustration of a car loan. He's saying even the first car loan had its terms and conditions. It had the day it was due, it had its interest rate, it had, it had its own specific list of terms and conditions. Well, so the old law, but under the new law, those have all changed, those are different. They're not the same. And while Hebrews chapters seven, eight, nine, and 10 are a great section of scripture proving that Jesus came to first keep and then abolish that old covenant in all of its terms and conditions in order to establish the new? There's other sections of scripture in the New Testament that are fabulous about this as well. There's so many of them, it's hard to, it's hard to miss it. For example, in 2 Corinthians chapter three, if you want to turn there, please do. 2 Corinthians chapter three, the whole chapter addresses this, but again, because of trying to condense it down, I'm only gonna hit a few highlights. 2 Corinthians chapter three. Look at what verses five and six undeniably prove. Everything I've been saying. Paul writes to the church of Christ in first century Corinth, 2 Corinthians three, verses five and six, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God who has also, or who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. What's he talking about that old covenant of the letter? He's talking about, as he'll go on to tell us in this very chapter, those letters engraved on stone, the Ten Commandments that Moses, he's gonna go on to explain, that's exactly what he's talking about. He says that, that old letter, letter of the law, that's, that, that'll kill you. He goes on to call that old covenant or testament or law, law or agreement 
a ministry of death written and engraved on stones as opposed or contrasted with this glorious new covenant or new agreement, which he calls the ministry of the Spirit, verses 7 and 8. He goes on in verse 9 to call that old covenant, that old law, that old testament, a ministry of condemnation in the New King James Version. It's contrasted to this new law, this new covenant, which is the ministry of righteousness. And look what he goes on to say in verses 10 through 14 as he contrasts these two contracts. He says, for even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels or surpasses it. For if what is passing away was glorious, that old law, what remains is much more glorious, this new covenant or agreement. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech, unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what, watch this, was passing away. That old covenant was never meant to last forever. We'll get to why in a minute. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ. We could point out a number of other passages, and if you're taking notes, here they are. Galatians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 2, Colossians chapter 2, and Hebrews 12, verses 18 and following, all of which prove this same point, just like the slide we have up here. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, Romans 10, 4. Colossians 2, 14 says, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, he took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross, and on 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 it goes. And somebody might say, okay, all right. But if that old covenant, if that old testament, if that old law was a ministry of death, if, if, it, if it couldn't save anybody, if it wasn't worth anything, why did God give it? What was the point? Why would God give people a law they couldn't keep? The answer is very simple because it's spelled out for us pretty much word for word in Galatians chapter 3. Look in Galatians chapter 3. Here's the answer to that question. Galatians chapter 3, <laughs> verses 19 and following. Watch this. Paul comes right out to the Church of Christ in uh, Churches of Christ in the Galatian region, and he says the very question pretty much I just asked you. What purpose then does the law serve? What's the point of the old law if it couldn't save anybody, if, it, if nobody could keep it, which he has said nobody could keep it. Nobody could keep the whole thing. James tells us to fail in one point is to fail in the whole thing. Like a chain, you got this like 30-foot chain, and you need 30-foot of chain. What happens if you break one link? You need 30 foot, you got 30 foot, you break one link, what happens? The whole chain is useless, right? For that 30 foot span you need it to cover. It doesn't matter if it's the third link or the 33rd or the 133rd link. You break it, it's useless. And, and James told us that to be guilty in just one point of breaking the old law meant you was guilty of the whole thing. That's why, that's why nobody could keep it, because nobody could do it perfectly. And Paul says, verse 19 of Galatians 3, what purpose does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. It was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? In other words, well, if nobody could keep it, does that go against what God was trying to accomplish? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. If people could have kept all of those do's and don'ts in the Old Testament, if they could have kept it perfectly, that would have been all that was needed. But the scripture is contained all under sin that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. Before faith came, that is before Jesus came and faith in him, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore the law was our tutor, schoolmaster, some versions say, 
to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. What's Paul saying in that passage? Simply this. Nobody could keep that old law. Nobody could do it perfectly. Couldn't. So why did God give it? Here's why God gave it. God gave it so that mankind would know what it would take to live perfect. God gave that old law to show you how much you needed him. God gave that Old Testament, that old covenant, that old law to say, okay, you want to be righteous? Here's what it takes. He knew they couldn't keep it. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight. God says, here's what it takes. Nobody did it. Nobody could keep it perfectly until Jesus came along. Jesus came along and he lived it perfectly. He kept all of the commandments. He did not do anything. God said, do not do this. On the cross, what did he say? He said, it is finished. I, I, I've kept it. I've fulfilled the law. I've lived it perfectly. And once it had been lived perfectly, he abolished it. He, he got rid of it. It's gone. And this new covenant, this new agreement came into effect. All the old law was for was to a tutor, a schoolmaster, say, hey, you can't be perfect in God's eyes by yourself. You need to throw yourself on the mercy of God. Oh, by the way, here's the perfect sacrifice. Here's what perfection looks like. And if you'll have faith in him and trust and obey him, then God will consider you righteous. God will forgive your sins because you can't keep the old law. It was a schoolmaster. It was a teacher. That's all it was. It was a teaching tool from God. But now, having established all of that, I want to take a quick look at some of the differing terms and conditions of those two very different covenants and contracts. I'll give you four of them. Under the old covenant, the old loan agreement, if you will, they had to tithe. Tithe, the, both the Greek and Hebrew word which we translate tithe, means a tenth. The word itself means tenth. Leviticus chapter 27, verses 30 through 34 is one of the primary Old Testament texts on this. Leviticus 27, 30 through 34. But you know, it's vital. Here's what we often miss when we look at that text. It is absolutely vital, it is critical that we understand that God made sure even in that text that we knew that this command was only for, quote, for the children of Israel. Verse 34. God makes absolutely clear that's who it was for. For the children of Israel. For the descendants of Abraham. For the Jews. That's who it was for. Those who were living under that old covenant or ministry of death. Those who were living under that which was simply a schoolmaster put in place to make us realize we couldn't do it all. Now, the new contract, or the new terms, the new conditions, the New Testament has totally different terms and conditions when it comes to giving. Here they are. Summarized for us in 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 and 7, the New Testament terms and conditions when it comes to giving is not tithing. I missed one. There it is is not tithing. 2 Corinthians 9, 6, and 7 says, but this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Do you see what the new contract calls for? Those churches that want to bring up tithing, have to understand the difference between the Old and New Covenant. Another place this comes in under the Old Covenant. Worship was on the seventh day. It was on the Sabbath day, on Saturday. God made it extremely clear in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, as well as verses 12 through 15, that once again, Sabbath worship was only for the Israelites, only for the Jews. You cannot read Deuteronomy in that particular text. You can't read any of those verses. Deuteronomy 5, 1 through 5, 12 through 15, and not see repeatedly that God stresses that that Sabbath is only for those people who were led out of slavery, out of Egyptian bondage and their descendants. That's the only people it applied to. He says that in verses 12 through 15. Got nothing to do with you and me. 
That was the old contract, the old covenant. The new covenant is completely different. In the new covenant, Jesus came along, he did away with the old, and in the new covenant, we have a different day of worship. It's the first day of the week, for many reasons. We know this. For example, Pentecost, the birthday of the church, was a Sunday. Because Pentecost occurred 50 days after Saturday. Do the math. Seven weeks at seven days is 49 days. So if you take a Saturday and you go forward 49 days, you land on Saturday. But Pentecost, the 50th day, always landed on a Sunday. Leviticus chapter 23, verses 15 through 21, talk about this feast they know as Pentecost, and it explains it's the 50th day after a Saturday. More important than that, the church's birthday on the first day of the week, all four Gospels tell us that Jesus rose when? On the first day of the week. That is the anniversary celebration of Jesus' resurrection, first day of the week. We read in Acts chapter 20 and verse 7 where the first century church gathered together on the first day of the week to break bread. That was their purpose. To do what we've done, they did it on the first day of the week. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. They gave of their means, not tithing. <laughs> they gave joyfully on the first day of the week. And so under the new covenant, just like on, on one loan, it may have been due on the 15th of the month, and, and, and the other loan may have been due on the 30th day of the month, different terms and conditions, same way on the covenants. Seventh day was the old covenant worship, but the, the new covenant that Jesus instituted, it's the first day of the week, as we have explained. Under the old covenant, priests who ministered before God were required to wear very elaborate, very specifically decorated robes, or they could not be in God's presence. Exodus chapter 28. Priestly garments were to be these robes, these exquisite, very specific, right down to the thread color, robes. Placement of things on them, or they couldn't, they couldn't minister before God. But under the new covenant, different terms and agreement. Under the new covenant, we're all ministers, right? We are what? A royal priesthood, right? Every Christian is a priest, right? And in order for us to minister before God, what do we wear? We're clothed with Christ when we become children of God through faith, Galatians 3, 26 and 7. For you're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who've been baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves or put on Christ. Different terms and conditions. Does a preacher have to wear a tie? You think Paul and Peter you think Peter came in from fishing all night on a Sunday morning and had a tie on? No, clothed with Christ. Different terms and conditions. It's about the heart, not the outside. Let me take you to one other place here, actually two. As you read through the old covenant or the old contract or the old testament or agreement, which was nowhere near as good as the bit new one, if you read through Psalms in particular, you will see that under the terms and conditions of the old agreement, instruments, were loud and acceptable. David played a harp, right? But under the New Covenant, there are eight verses in the entire New Testament that talk about music and the music God wants. The terms and conditions are totally different. They're not, they're not instruments anymore. Now it's singing. Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16 and 17 are amongst those eight times in the New Testament where we hear about singing for the church, for people, music. It's always singing. Now, here's my question. What do you suppose, I want you to think about this based on everything we've said and the car loan and all that, that illustration at the beginning. What do you think, what do you suppose would happen if a person who had entered into the new covenant, the new contract, the new agreement with God, they had agreed to its terms and conditions. They had placed themselves under the authority of Christ by being baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. They've had their sins washed away. He said, this, this cup is the, is, my, is the new covenant in my blood. And they've entered that new contract and it's been signed in blood by Jesus Christ. This one belongs to me, sins forgiven. What do you suppose if all of a sudden somebody who's agreed to that new contract says to God, well, 
I know we have a contract and I know what it says, but, but, but I want to bring up the terms and conditions of the old one. I want to keep those instead. Can you take a new loan and go back to the terms and conditions of the previous one and have the bank accept it? Can you? I couldn't make $48 a month payments on that new truck, people. They wouldn't have accepted it. In the same way, when we become part of that new covenant, we can't go back and drag up the terms and conditions of the old covenant and say, I want to use these terms and conditions under this better covenant. Can't do it. In the new contract, we have very specific things that God wants. So what do you suppose, again, if somebody's part of that new covenant, and they come up and they want to insist on tithing, Sabbath keeping, robe wearing by priests or instrument playing by worshipers, all of which Jesus took out of the way and nailed to the cross, Ephesians 2.11. What do you suppose would happen if those people come up to God and wanted to insist on those things? What do you think? Don't answer me, but think. We don't have to really think about it too hard because we have an example of something else that was under the old covenant that people sought to bring up into the new covenant and the apostles would have absolutely none of it because you can't drag those terms and conditions up. In Genesis chapter 17, that old covenant that was made with Abraham, in verses 9 through 14, circumcision was part of that old agreement. You can read all about it right there in Genesis 17, 9 through 14. This was the agreement, the covenant, the terms and conditions of the old contract that God made with Abraham, said, this is the way it's going to be. This will be a sign. This is, this is the agreement. Any of you remember the terminology, the Jerusalem Council? You remember that? Acts 15? Remember what the problem was in Acts 15? I'll tell you what the problem was in Acts 15. You can go home and read it yourself. The problem in Acts 15 was that once these people had, had fallen under, come under, and agreed to this new covenant where they're cleansed by the blood of Christ, once they become members of the blood-bought church of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, there were people that came along and said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Unless you are circumcised, terms and conditions of the old covenant, we've got to bring those up into the new, Unless you're circumcised, you can't be saved. Paul says, now you wait just a minute. <laughs> oh, no. My terminology, read Acts 15. That's what I'm trying to get you to do. So they had this big council in Jerusalem. And you know what the council decided about circumcision? Do you remember their, their letter that they sent to all the churches? Circumcision's got nothing to do with the terms and conditions of the New Covenant. Absolutely nothing. You do not have to, you can't do it. You, you can't. But it gets even stronger. Look at me in Galatians 5. Galatians 5. <laughs> Some of these people that wanted to drag up elements of the old contract and, and kind of mingle them with the terms and conditions of the new contract, Paul wouldn't stand for it for a minute. In fact, he said, look, if you're going to do that, you have fallen from grace. If you're going to bring up that old contract term and you're going to seek to bind it on the new contract, he said, Christ can't be your savior because the new contract is about Jesus and this is what Jesus said and you can't be bringing this stuff up and putting it in this agreement. It doesn't work that way. You don't have the authority to do that. Any more than I had the authority to go tell the bank, I'm paying 48 a month on this new truck. Can't do it. Look what Paul says in Galatians 5. He says, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Here's this ministry of death. They're trying to bring up this Old Testament agreement stuff. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, if you let them drag that into the new covenant, Christ will profit you nothing. If you don't respect his authority and his terms and conditions under the new agreement, but you want to drag the old up, he can't be your savior. And I testify again, Paul, Paul's not done. I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. Do you remember the chain illustration? You break one link and you've broken the whole, that's what Paul's saying. Look, 
<laughs> if you're going back and bring circumcision up, you better bring the whole law, the Sabbath, everything you never could do anyway, everything that was going to cause you to die anyway because you couldn't keep it, everything God was trying to teach you it takes to be holy and you couldn't do it, you really want to bring all that stuff back up? You've got so much better agreement, so much better terms and conditions. Basically, Paul's saying, are you out of your mind? I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised, he's a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. And for those that were trying to bind circumcision, you want to talk about strong language, look what Paul says in verse 12. Start in verse 11, actually. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense on the cross has ceased. The offense of the cross has ceased. I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. Now, I'm not going into a vast, in-depth explanation of this particular text, but those of you who are adults understand exactly what Paul's saying. He says, they're going to bind circumcision. Well, this is what I wish they'd do. You can't bring that up into the New Testament. This is akin to saying, if I may apply it to some of those other things, <laughs> Paul here, this is akin to saying, I wish those who are insisting on you guys under the new covenant wearing robes if your priest would strangle themselves with it. That, that's pretty much that equivalent. Or, I wish those who are trying to bring instruments up into the new covenant would just break them over each other's heads. Pretty much the equivalent of what Paul's saying in regard to circumcision in chapter 5 and verse 12 of Galatians. one other area, one other area, and it is probably, at least in my mind, there might not be any other section of scripture wherein this failure to recognize the difference between the old law with its terms and conditions which Christ completely removed when he was nailed to the cross and bled out for us and the new contract or covenant. Those who fail to distinguish between the two of those, this is going to cost more of those people their souls than I can even imagine. And it's when it comes to the area of salvation. And it has to do with the thief on the cross. Luke chapter, I know this is not the reference it says there, we'll get there in a minute, but the story of the thief on the cross in Luke 23, 39 through 43. I cannot tell you how many people, when you talk about being baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, thief on the cross didn't have to be baptized. He, was, he went to be with para, Jesus in paradise. He didn't have to be baptized. Of course, they'll say there's a prayer of faith involved there, but I don't see him welcoming Jesus into his heart either, but that's beside the point. And when they go back, every time they go back to the thief on the cross, every single time they go back to the thief on the cross, they're missing one point, just one. And that point is that the thief on the cross lived and died under the old covenant, the old contract. The terms of baptism, the condition of baptism for salvation wasn't in place in the old contract. That's part of the, the new covenant. Jesus said, this is my blood. This is the new covenant. This is the new contract. Turn with me to Hebrews 9, and whenever anybody brings up the thief on the cross, you've got to go to this text. It's right in the heart of Hebrews 7, 8, 9, and 10, which talks about everything I've talked about this morning and more in greater detail. Hebrews chapter 9. Beside of the story, beside of the story of the thief on the cross in, in Luke 23 in your Bible, you need to write down Hebrews 9, 15, 16, and 17. Watch what it says in the midst of this whole discussion. It says this, and for this reason, that is he, uh, he, and for this reason he, that is Jesus, is the mediator of the new covenant. By means of death, it came into effect when he died for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant. Do you see right there in that text, there's a first covenant and there's a new covenant right there in that very text that you can't miss it. 
that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where there is a testament or a will, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator or the person who made the will out. This is not hard to understand. When you have a will, if I have my will written out, and I say to this child I'm leaving this, and to this child I'm leaving this, and to this child I'm leaving this, can they have those things while I'm alive? Yes or no? This means yes, this means no. Can they have those things while I'm alive? Boy, you guys are not with me. Let's try some more time. No! Because a will is only in effect after the person that made it dies. That's exactly what Paul's saying. No, not Paul, writer of Hebrews. If you believe that's Paul, that's fine, but if not, we'll go with the writer of Hebrews. Where there is a testament or a will, there must of necessity be the death of the person who made it out. Jesus, the thief on the cross, lived and died under the old covenant. He didn't need to be baptized. For a testament, verse 17, is in force after men are dead. Since it has no power at all while the testator lives, while Jesus lived on this earth, this New Testament didn't come into effect. Of course the thief didn't have to be baptized. He lived under an agreement that didn't include that in the conditions. How many of you, and this is the question we need to ask people who want to, want to say, well, I want to go, I want to be like a thief on the cross. Okay, fine. Don't want to be baptized? Don't want, to, don't want to understand and see what it says under the new covenant, the terms and conditions, it's right, fine. You want to be like the thief on the cross, you best go back to Sabbath worship. And you best bring your animal sacrifices and your instrumental music, and you better be able to prove your lineage to Abraham, which you can't do since the destruction of the temple in 70 AD in Jerusalem, but work with me here. You want to go back to that old law that was a ministry of death that nobody can keep? Baptism wasn't a part of, because you only got two options here. You got the old agreement, the new agreement. So everybody's got to decide which one they want to live under. That's basically what it comes down to. I tell you what, I don't want to go back to a system that's going to condemn me no matter what I do. Do you? You? No matter how good you are or how strong you strive to keep it, you're going to break a link. You want to go back to something that's going to cause you to go to hell forever? no matter how good you are. I don't either. I'm not going back to that old contract that the thief on the cross lived under before Jesus took him to paradise. I want to be part of that new agreement. I want the grace and truth that came through Jesus Christ, John chapter 1, verse 17. I want to know that I have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, who's there to give me grace and mercy in my time of need. I want to know that I'm under the blood of Jesus Christ so that when I make those inevitable mess ups, that God's got it covered, don't you? And that blood is part of the new covenant. And that new covenant absolutely, absolutely terms and conditions we need to repent and be baptized, every one of us, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. That's when we enter that new covenant. Final passage of the morning. Have you entered into that new covenant? Have you entered into that new contract, covenant, agreement, testament, will? Call it whatever you will. Turn to me to Hebrews 10. Because you enter into that contract under the blood when you access the blood by being baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, being baptized into Christ. That's when you sign the contract in his blood. It's when he does as well. Hebrews 10, verse 15. Again, in this section of Hebrews that contrasts the old and the new. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I'll put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Uh, hello, again, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Then he adds, at the end of Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. That's the covenant I want to be a part of. Now where there is remission of these, what did Jesus say? This 
was for the remission of sins. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way. Listen, you can't enter. You can't enter by the old way. You've got to go through the blood. The blood is what opened up the new contract by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. When he died on the cross, did away with the old and brought up the new. That's when that happened. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, having our bodies washed to purify us. That's when we enter that new covenant. If you're here this morning, don't close your Bible yet. You're here this morning and you haven't entered into that new covenant. Why not? What are you waiting for? We'd love to have you be baptized into Christ so you can have that full assurance of faith by being baptized, verse 22. And if you've already done that, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Maybe you're here this morning and you've already been purified, as it were, by being baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. You've entered into that new covenant, but you're sitting here this morning, you're saying, you know what? I haven't been holding as fast as I should be without wavering. I haven't held on to that new covenant as strongly as I need to in order to go to heaven. Maybe you need the prayers of the church. But if you're here this morning and you know somebody doesn't understand the difference between the old and the new covenant share this lesson with them later on but right now if you'd be baptized into Christ if you'd become part of that covenant or if you need the prayers of the church to be stronger in that covenant you've already entered into please come right now right down the front as we stand and sing